Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All things considered, Ireland is one of the best places to live when it comes to natural disasters. The climate is relatively predictable, and while it can be wet, we rarely have extremes of heat or cold. Highly destructive phenomena like hurricanes and earthquakes are extremely rare. However, there have been exceptions to this, and that's what this show is about. Over the course of this episode, we're going to look at a couple of really fascinating stories from the past. Like in the 1750s when Cork was struck by a tsunami, I'll also explore a fascinating event between 1815 and 1816 when the biggest volcanic eruption in recorded history actually led to a spate of murders and starvation across Ireland. Then to finish up I'm going to look at a meteor strike in 1908 that was humanity's greatest escape arguably in the 20th century. It's going to be a fascinating show so stay tuned. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dwyer. Now I'm pretty excited recording this episode. My new book, A Lethal Legacy, A History of Ireland in 18 Murders, hits the shelves this week on Thursday, September the 14th. And I can't wait to hear what you make of it. As I've mentioned before on the show, it was very much written with you, the listeners of the podcast in mind. So your reviews are what matter most to me. Now, I do think you'll really enjoy the book. It chronicles 200 years of Irish history through the prism of 18 murders. These are not in the main famous or well-known cases or people, but they did have the misfortune to die at pivotal moments in our past or died because of major changes. Their lives and deaths give us an incredible insight into the past. Now, you can still pre-order a Lethal Legacy, A History of Ireland in 18 Murders, if you're listening to the show before September the 14th. You might wonder why you'd want to pre-order the book, given it's coming out this week. Well, the best reason is that if you order from Eason's at the link in the show notes below and use the code FD10, they'll give you a 10% discount. Now, that offer is going to run out at midnight on September the 13th, so you don't have much time. So maybe pause the show, go to that link, pre-order your copy, And then listen to the episode. Okay, so all that said, let's get into the episode. 
Additional narrations are from Aidan Crow, and sound is by Kate Dunley. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, earthquakes are pretty rare in Ireland, but they're not unheard of. They are referenced on occasion in medieval accounts, for example. We do know that something pretty significant took place around the year 720. Medieval annals in that year recorded an earthquake and then what was described as a great bursting forth from the sea. Now, the historian Oshin Makovna has convincingly argued that the great bursting forth from the sea is actually a reference to a tsunami, which are giant waves that frequently occur in the aftermath of an earthquake. Sadly, however, we don't really have any more details about that event in 720. While it does seem to have been pretty significant, we have no idea how big that tsunami was, if it inflicted much damage, or whether there was a loss of life. The first major earthquake and tsunami to really affect Ireland that was recorded in detail dates from the 18th century and this actually caused considerable damage in Cork City and the wider county. Now this is a story that begins in the depths of the Atlantic Ocean in November 1755. So on the morning of November the 1st 1755 one of the most devastating earthquakes in European history occurred on the seabed a few hundred kilometres off the west coast of Portugal. It's thought to have measured around 8 to 9 on the Richter scale and it would absolutely devastate the Portuguese city of Lisbon. Now as buildings collapsed across that city, the falling debris would be set alight by fireplaces inside the buildings. This sparked a major conflagration that would burn in Lisbon for a week. In a bid to escape this carnage, many of the inhabitants of the city fled to the open space of the city docks, hoping this would provide safety and security. However, this would prove a fatal decision for many. The earthquake, the epicentre of which was on the seabed of the Atlantic Ocean, triggered a tsunami, a giant wave 5 to 10 metres in height, and this swept across low-lying parts of Lisbon when it reached the shore. The quake did take place before modern records and historians are pretty divided as to the exact number of casualties in Lisbon. Low estimates put the figure at about 10,000 while higher numbers claim 90,000 perished. If that higher figure is correct, we're talking about 40% of the population of the city. Now while Lisbon was devastated, such was the scale of the earthquake that it was felt thousands of kilometres away. And the tsunami, that giant wave it generated, not only struck the coast of Portugal, but spread across the North Atlantic in all directions. This would batter the coasts of Spain and France, eventually making its way north as far as Ireland, Britain and beyond. In Ireland, the coastline of County Cork in particular was the most exposed, as nothing but 1,500 kilometres of open sea lay between it and the epicentre of the quake. This would have a devastating impact in the town of Kinsale and the city of Cork. An eyewitness would later write an account of what happened in the harbour of Kinsale for the Royal Society in London on November the 1st, the day the earthquake devastated Lisbon. Signed by the name El Nicola, the letter explained how suddenly the tide began to rise rapidly in a violent manner. On November 1st, between the hours of 2 and 3 in the afternoon, the weather being very calm, and the tide near full, a large body of water suddenly poured into this harbour with such rapidity that it broke the cables of two sloops, each moored with two anchors, 
and several boats were carried up, then down the harbour. The successive risings and fallings of the water continued about ten minutes, and then the tide returned to its natural course. This initial tsunami was followed several hours later by a second tsunami. The same correspondent continued his account. Between six and seven in the evening, I saw the water rise again, though not with as great violence as the former time, and I am told it continued its alternate ebbs and flows till three in the morning. This account was supported by another letter, which provided more specific details. On a sudden, the flood returned violently, and in such quantities that the market quay was covered, and the tide flowed up to the market. The rapidity of the flood was a sudden, and equally violent. Several vessels were left dry on shore. These letters suggest that the coastline was struck by not one, but two tsunamis around four or five hours apart. The first, it seems, was caused locally by the impact of the earthquake on the seabed off Cork. Then a second, four or five hours later, was the actual tsunami that had started off the coast of Portugal at the epicentre of the quake, but took several hours to travel the 1,500 kilometres north to Cork. Unsurprisingly, the events of November the 1st caused considerable damage. In Cork City, the network of low-lying islands that formed the city centre were flooded with areas such as the Colquay, Watergate Lane, Christchurch Lane and Hammond's Marsh all being described as inundated with water. While there's no reference to fatalities, this may be an omission rather than an indication that no one died in Cork. The events certainly left a major impression on the population. In recent years, the researcher Anthony Bees conducted a series of interviews in West Cork where he gathered folklore that spoke of tsunami-like events. His blog post on this is linked in the show notes below. It's really worth reading. Now, while the tsunami of 1755 was obviously a rarity in terms of Ireland, the following years saw major aftershocks of the Lisbon earthquake that affected Cork. The most serious of these took place in March 1761. This again saw another major quake off the coast of Portugal that was felt in Cork City. On April 6th, 1761, the newspaper, the Dublin Courier, published a letter describing what happened in Cork. At a quarter after twelve on this day, a shock of an earthquake was felt here, just as it was in November 1755, but more violent. This too was followed by a tsunami, although on this occasion it doesn't appear to have made landfall in Ireland at least. It was reported, however, that a ship that arrived in Ireland a few weeks later had felt it at sea. The passengers experienced what they called an unusual agitation of the sea, even though it was a perfectly calm day. Now, while the devastation caused by these earthquakes and tsunamis in the 1750s and 1760s had a limited impact in Ireland, five decades later, another natural disaster would have a catastrophic impact. The year 1816 was a pretty distressing time for many in Ireland. The weather was, in a word, strange, and in a society dependent on a good harvest, anything that affected crops could spell disaster. Failed harvests led to hunger, and this, in turn, led to social upheaval and violence. And in 1816, the future looked alarming, to say the least, as everything about the weather that year seemed to be far from normal. The spring had come late, and when it did come, it was followed by a highly unusual summer that was cold and even wintry by some descriptions. Then, as the harvest approached, the weather turned intensely wet. 
Newspapers across Ireland reported crops underwater in the key months of September and October. William Lodge Kidd, a doctor from Armagh, described the situation as follows. The winter which terminated in 1815 to 1816 proved not only uncommonly severe but unusually protracted. This was followed by a summer to which I believe the memory of a man furnishes no parallel, being wet, cold and in every aspect incongenial to the growth or maturation of the fruits of the earth. Now while this poor weather was going to lead to a bad harvest and the prospect of a famine reared its head, the newspaper the Dublin Evening Post tried to console its readers late in the year by informing them that the unusual weather was by no means unique to Ireland that year. In June, hail showers that destroyed crops had been reported in Bavaria. Snow fell in Swabia that summer as well. In Bordeaux, in western France, June was said to be dark, rainy and cold like October. However, there was even stranger climactic events. Red snow had been recorded in Toronto, Italy, which was said to emit a sulphury smell. Then the arrival of ships from across the Atlantic only confirmed North America was also experiencing wintry conditions at the height of summer, with snows recorded across New England in June. These strange reports, however, did little to explain why the weather was so unusual. Indeed, it would be a long time before anyone fully understood what was happening. You see, unbeknownst to anyone in Europe, an eruption of a volcano few had ever even heard of in Southeast Asia a year previously was the source of this bad weather. In fact, countries across Europe and North America had already been plunged into what's called a volcanic winter. The scale of the eruption that caused this, however, was terrible. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy. And BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. 
At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. Now, the first major reports of this volcanic activity had surfaced around mid-July 1815 in a newspaper called the Madras Courier in India, and it carried a letter from Surabaya in Indonesia reporting massive eruptions. Two days later, another newspaper on the subcontinent, the Government Gazette, carried more details about the ferocity of the eruption, stating that ash from the volcano had plunged the entire surrounding region into such a state of darkness that it was impossible to even identify the volcano itself on the horizon. It is a curious circumstance that the darkness produced by the eruption was so profound that even after many days the site of the volcano was not known. Further reports would go on to make even more extraordinary claims. It was reported that the town of Baniwangi, several hundred kilometres from the eruption, was plunged into darkness for three days by the ash in the atmosphere, while eight to nine inches of ash gathered on the rooftops of the buildings, causing many to collapse. Trees were said to have withered and died. Now, although these might seem fanciful, and many initially did doubt them, a report from a captain on an East India Company ship stationed at Makassar, several hundred kilometres to the north of the eruption, would confirm this. The captain wrote, The ashes now began to fall in showers, and the appearance altogether was truly awful and alarming. By noon, the light that had remained in the eastern part of the horizon disappeared. The darkness was so profound throughout the remainder of the day, that I never saw anything equal to it in the darkest night. It was impossible to see your hand when you held it up close to the eye. The appearance of the ship, when daylight returned, was most extraordinary. The mass, rigging, decks, and every part being covered with falling matter, nearly the colour of wood ashes. It lay in heaps of a foot in depth in many parts of the deck, and I am convinced several tons of weight were thrown overboard. These reports were later confirmed to be the eruption of Mount Tamboro, a volcano in Indonesia. The eruption that began on April 4th was of such force that actually one side of the mountain collapsed. It remains to the present one of the most powerful eruptions in recorded history, and its global implications in 1816 were catastrophic. While it would take nearly a year for the reports of the eruption to reach Europe, Millions of tons of ash had already been blown into the sky and had started to circulate around the world. This ash partially blocked out the sun, leading to a dramatic fall in temperatures. The year 1816 would become known as the year without summer. While Irish newspapers pointed out that the effects were worse in other countries, Ireland, for example, did not experience snow in summer, the impact was still highly significant on the island. The harvest of 1816 was extremely poor. This led to major food shortages, rising prices and social tension. Late in that year of 1816, a horrific massacre, already covered in a previous episode of the show called The Massacre of Wild Goose Lodge in County Louth, saw several people killed in their home that was intentionally burned to the ground in a winter of major discontent. Now, to blame this exclusively and solely on the eruption of Mount Tamboro might take things a little too far. The first chapter of my book, A Lethal Legacy, A History of Ireland and 18 Murders, 
explores the extremely volatile nature of Irish society in the opening decades of the 19th century, and it never took much for the tensions that were constantly bubbling beneath the surface to bubble into full-blown violence. A volcanic winter that impacted the harvest was enough on this occasion. Exactly how many people perished in Ireland and across the world because of this eruption at Mount Tambora is anyone's guess. However, bad as it was, the final story in today's show raises the potential of a far greater disaster. In 1908, the world experienced what is probably the greatest near-miss in recorded human history. Every time I think about this, it's pretty unnerving, to say the least. Now, the last story in this episode began on the night of June 30th, 1908. You've probably never heard of that specific date before, but there's a good argument that this should be remembered as one of the most significant dates in global history in the 20th century, or certainly the first half of the 20th century. The summer of 1908 was, in the grand scheme of things, a pretty uneventful time. But something extremely unusual and strange took place on the night of June 30th, 1908. In the following days, newspapers began to receive queries from readers about what they had experienced, asking if others had seen it too. And this letter to the newspaper, the Belfast Newsletter, on July 3rd, detailed what exactly happened. To the editor of the Belfast Newsletter. I would be interested to know whether the extraordinary brightness of the sky in this neighbourhood on Wednesday night last was observable elsewhere. At 10.45pm, the sky was so bright that the sunlight was reflected from the chimney top. At 11.15pm, I read ordinary print outside my house. At 12 o'clock, every object on the quay road was distinctly visible for its entire length. A distance more than a quarter mile. One might fancy oneself in Norway. Yours, I.P. Barnes, Ballycastle, 2nd of July. Norway is referenced there because it experiences almost 24 hours of sunlight in summer. But over the following days in 1908, other readers responded to that letter, verifying that they too had seen this event. This letter, for example, received by the Belfast Newsletter the very next day, explained it best. To the editor of the Belfast Newsletter. I see correspondence writes about the extraordinary brightness of the sky in the evening of the 1st of July. It was plainly visible from my house. Can any of your correspondents explain the cause of this curious phenomenon, which appears similar to that witnessed by a German scientist in Berlin? Yours, J. Fitzroy C. Clark, 7th Dragoons Guards, The Steeple, Antrim, 3rd of July. While the Belfast Newsletter's readership was based largely in the northeast of Ireland, the same phenomenon was witnessed elsewhere on the island. In Waterford, on the south coast, the Evening News on July 4th reported people had observed a similar phenomenon there. Indeed, similar letters were received by newspapers all across the United Kingdom and continental Europe. Inevitably, people struggled to explain this strange phenomenon where night had turned into day. The Times of London speculated it may have been related to yet another unreported volcanic eruption. As we saw in the Mount Tamboro story, the world had already experienced the dramatic impact a major eruption could have, and in more recent times there had been a massive eruption, this time at Krakatoa in Indonesia, which had had a profound impact across the world. However, what happened in 1908 was different to any of these. 
In the following days and weeks after the strange phenomenon, there was no reports of another eruption anywhere on the globe. And by this stage in the early 20th century, it was pretty inconceivable that something of this scale could take place without news of it eventually emerging. Ultimately, it would be years before what had happened was fully understood and it was far more terrifying than any volcanic eruption. Somewhat by accident, the letters page of the Belfast newsletter newspaper in the days following the phenomenon had actually recorded the truth of the matter, but no one really realised. On Saturday, July the 4th, four days after the strange occurrence, where night had turned into day, an anonymous writer who went only by the pseudonym Morn, presumably after the Morn Mountains, reported the following events in the context of what had already been reported. Sir, the extraordinary brightness of the sky on Wednesday night last was plainly visible here, the light increasing after the sunset. On the same evening, three persons who were sitting on the shore distinctly saw a ball of fire descend slowly from the sky until within short distance of the sea it burst. Would electricity in atmosphere account for this? Yours, Morn. Newcastle, County Down, 3rd of July. The observation was actually on the right track, but I'd come to the wrong conclusion. The phenomenon was not electricity, or aliens for that matter, if that's where you're heading. The fireball that burst above the seas off the north coast of Ireland was presumably a small meteor that had crashed to Earth. However, this was almost certainly a particle that had broken off a vastly larger meteor that had crashed to Earth about 8,000 kilometres to the east of Ireland at a place called Tunguska. Now, Tunguska, thankfully, is one of the most remote places on Earth, located in Siberian Russia, that's kind of north of Mongolia. If you look at this place on Google Earth, there's almost nothing there except trees. Now, given the scale of the explosion that took place there as the meteor crashed to Earth, this is one of the greatest near misses in history. The damage this meteor inflicted is actually quite hard to comprehend. It's thought that the meteor did not actually impact the Earth, but instead exploded in the atmosphere. This unleashed an explosion the like of which the world had never seen at the time. In an article David Asher from the Armagh Observatory and Bill Napier from Cardiff University estimated the force of the explosion was somewhere between 3 and 15 megatons. If my calculations are correct, this is somewhere in the region of 1,000 times stronger than the atomic bomb that obliterated the Japanese city of Hiroshima at the end of the Second World War. The meteor itself is estimated to have been around 50 to 100 metres in diameter. Somewhat incredibly, there appears to have been only three fatalities. This, however, is due to the extremely remote nature of Tunguska rather than any reflection of the power of the explosion itself. This power was demonstrated by the fact that 2,000 square kilometres of forests across Tunguska were flattened by the explosion. This makes what is known as the Tunguska event unnerving to say the least. The point at which the meteor crashed to Earth was completely random. It was pure coincidence that it happened to burn up and explode in the atmosphere above one of the most remote corners of the globe. It could just as easily have crashed into Dublin London, New York, Shanghai, Cairo, or alternatively, one of the oceans that cover most of the globe. In that article I mentioned by David Asher and Bill Napier, which I'll link in the show notes below, they say the following about the impact. The term boloid here means meteor, basically. In the case of an impact on London, 
a bolide brighter than the sun and leaving a thick trail of smoke, would have been seen approaching from halfway across France. The gunfire-like bangs of the impact would have been heard across Britain to Ireland, north to Orkney and Denmark, and over Europe as far as Switzerland. People would have had their hats knocked off in Glasgow and Edinburgh. Topsoil would have been stripped from the fields in Cheshire. Trains would have been derailed throughout central England, and people in Oxford would have been thrown through the air and severely burned. Now, for some context here, Oxford, where they speculate people would have been burned and thrown into the air, is a hundred kilometres from central London. The level of destruction in the city itself, had the meteor exploded above London, would have been catastrophic. Asher and Napier continued to describe the impact in London had this occurred. An incandescent column of matter would have been thrown 20 kilometres into the air over London, and the city itself would have been destroyed about as far out as the present-day M25 ring road. We can only imagine the death toll. The population of London in 1908 was around 7 million people, with a further 2.5 million living in the surrounding region. Such an event would also have immense political ramifications as well. In that article, Napier and Asher speculated what these could have been. The political ramifications that would have followed the destruction of Edwardian London are a matter for speculation. One may question whether the British Empire would have survived. If you think the last assertion that the British Empire might not have survived is fanciful, it's worth bearing in mind that most leading politicians, civil servants and the royal family would have been killed. Key military figures would also have died in large numbers. The capital and financial nerve centre of the empire would also have just ceased to exist on one day. In such an eventuality, whether the empire could survive would certainly have hung in the balance. While this is veering dangerously into counterfactual history, it is disconcerting to say the least, because it's not the stuff of science fiction. It did happen, just that meteor, by coincidence, impacted a place where it inflicted the least amount of damage. Okay, that's where I'm going to wrap up this show for today, folks. Don't forget, you still have a few days to pre-order Lethal Legacy, A History of Ireland and 18 Murders at Easton's and get that 10% discount. You'll find full details in the show notes below. But that offer does end on Thursday when the book is released. Now, hopefully I will see you at the launch on Thursday. It's going to be a great event. As I say, it's on in hot. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Just figures bookshop on Dawson Street in the city centre at 6pm on Thursday, September the 14th. I'll see you there. Until next time, Sloan. <laughs>